Let's pray. Father, may the Lord or the words of my heart and the meditations of my lips be acceptable unto you, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. In an ominous recap to Matthew 2, we read the following words of despair. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Today is the third Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of joy. And that's the passage that I read to you. It's hard to see joy in such a passage, and the painting by Cognier doesn't help. He captures the fear on the mother's face as she tries to keep her baby quiet as King Herod's minions wreak havoc through the town. If we're looking at a photograph instead of a painting, the baby we see would not survive. This mother and her child will pay a ghastly price, and she has no idea why. Still, this moment is more significant than she can imagine. It represents one of the last moments of an attempt to overthrow a plan set in motion from the foundation of the world. The violence may reign for a time, and times, and half a time, but this desperate lashing out cannot accomplish what it intends to do. For the perpetrators of such violence... It is already too late. The story of Matthew 2 may be familiar to you. King Herod served as the Roman client king of Judea, and his portrayal in history is not flattering. He is cruel. He's suspicious. He's vindictive. According to the ancient writer Macrobius, Caesar Augustus said it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be his son, Caesar's retort is based on the events of Matthew 2 and the legend that Herod had his own son killed in the Malay. Well, three wise men then from the east saw a star in the east. I guess that's that way. And then that led them to go west. When they arrive in Jerusalem, they appear before Herod and they ask him, Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it, was, when it rose, and we've come to worship him. Interestingly, the simple question troubles Herod and all of Jerusalem with him. We get no comment on why everyone was so upset, but we can soon discern it. The religious authorities tell everyone that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. The wise men head for Bethlehem with Herod's blessing, but in secret, Herod asked the men to return after worshiping the child so that I too may go and worship him. Well, the men see Jesus. They worship him. They shower him with gifts. But all is not well. In close succession, two troubling dreams point to Herod's response to the news that he found so alarming. First, the men are warned not to return to Herod. Second, Joseph 
Mary's fiance, the child's mother, is warned to take his young family to Egypt, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And Herod tries. But the child is not there. The family has fled to, to Egypt, warned by an angel and financed by the wise men. Herod does not know that, so he lashes out. And Rachel mourns the loss of her children. The audacity of Herod always strikes me. He finds out that Messiah has been born in his lifetime. And he sees this as a threat. So even though this is God's plan, put in motion from the foundation of the world, Herod assumes that he can stop this plan if he just kills all the babies in the village pointed to by the prophecy to ensure that he gets the right baby dead. Of course, he fails. How could he not? But Rachel is left to mourn the loss of her children. While Herod's logic escapes me, it does not surprise me. Nor does the wreckage that is churned up in Herod's wake. The book of Revelation demonstrates what happened in, in Matthew 2 and continues to happen through stark contrast to the exalted vision of Christ that we saw in Revelation 1. But before we get to this contrast, there's one more key image of Jesus in the book of Revelation that we need to see before we can adequately understand Revelation 12. In Revelation 4... John's vision has transported him to heaven and he sees God on the throne in all his attendant glory with worship taking place all around him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and praise for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. In the scene, John sees a scroll in, Jesus, in God's right hand. And John is distraught when he discovers that no one is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. One of the beings, an elder, standing around the throne told John, Don't weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But when John looks, he does not see a lion. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This is one of the critical moments in the book of Revelation. Throughout John's vision, the idea of conquering is central. Here John tells us what it means to conquer. When the elder encourages John, he tells him to look at a lion. An Old Testament image that implies a threat. For instance, when God roars in the book of Amos, he is not saying, come and pet the nice kitty. Amos' message is a harsh condemnation of God's people. So when John is told to look, what he is to look at is the image of a threat. A lion who has conquered Notice, though, that the lion isn't coming for war and judgment. He's already finished. Still, 
when John looks, he doesn't see a victorious lion. He sees a slain lamb. This is how Jesus conquers. Not through killing, not by destroying, but by dying. John's audience was used to the imagery of power. From coins to statues to buildings, everything proclaimed the power of Rome. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was, built, uh, was a peace built on violence. You will conform or we will remove you. But it turns out that, that Rome's power was limited, as any expression of, of human power must be. And the Christians knew it. That's why they would affirm that Christ is Lord, not Caesar. So if the worst that Rome can do is bring death, what does that mean to, to the one who conquered death? What does that mean to the ones who belong to the one who conquered death? For Christians, Jesus' death is victory. Nevertheless, the Bible and the book of Revelation is not unaware of human suffering. In contrast to the exalted heavenly vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, in the vivid heavenly image of the victorious slain lamb in Revelation 5, Revelation 12 gives us a heavenly perspective of evil. But as the chapter opens... John describes an image of how God views his people. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. The sign displays a woman dressed in the glory of the universe. She's pregnant, crying out in pain. Ominously, though, this is not the only sign. Another sign accompanies the first. The contrast in the second sign is stark. While the woman is dressed in marvelous splendor, she has an adversary. John describes the adversary with the imagery of terror. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. The John sees a dragon is significant. The dragon symbolizes chaos and fear throughout the Old Testament. Oh, not supposed to walk in front of a speaker. In the Old Testament, the dragon is pictured as swallowing its helpless victims without mercy or restraint. And this painting is representative. However, this painting is not from Revelation chapter 12. It's actually from Job 41, where God confronts Job with the terror of Leviathan, the sea monster. And imagine yourself in the place of Job, and God asks you, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook, or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it 
beg you for mercy? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with great why or with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Job's situation is a discussion for another day. Still, he serves us here alone before an unfathomable enemy who seeks no compromise, only destruction, to help us understand the terror of John's seven-headed, ten-horned, red dragon, full of, hum- uh, full of fury, ready to devour the woman's child without mercy or restraint in Revelation 12. As John continues, however, we immediately see that the dragon cannot accomplish his purpose. And in seeing this, we also glimpse what John's vision communicates. The woman gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to heaven, or snatched up to God in his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. The allusion to Psalm 2 that the child will rule the nations with an iron scepter clarifies who this child is. This is the fourth portrayal of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. First, John describes uh, Jesus in stunning glory in Revelation chapter 1. Second, he hears John described as a lion who conquered in Revelation 5. But third, in that same chapter, he sees Jesus as a slain lamb. Here, John describes Jesus as a newborn child not devoured by the dragon. Instead, the child is snatched to the throne of God, and the woman goes to a place of safety in the wilderness, the desert that God has prepared for her. We cannot miss the importance of what John sees. Few would dispute that the snatching of the child depicts Jesus' ascension to the Father after his death. Thus, the dragon's desire to devour the child was an attempt to do more than to kill Jesus. The dragon intended to swallow the child, to obliterate him, a consistent metaphor for death and destruction. The danger to the child was not simply his death. The dragon intended much more. Now, with the child at the throne and the woman safe in the wilderness, the desert, uh, as, as you can see in the background, not a place of comfort, Jesus sees something, or John sees something incredible. Then war broke out in heaven. And his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient spirit called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Notice here what we learn about the dragon. First, Satan may think he's God's equal, But notice that God did not fight this battle. Satan is not God's equal. Satan can't even defeat an angel. Uh, An archangel, yes. uh, The defender of God's people, certainly. But Michael's not God. Michael serves God. Second, in, in the dragon's defeat, he is hurled 
to the earth, which is significant for us, as we'll see later on. Finally, John tells us exactly who this dragon is. The great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And here we have a little Bible trivia. It's not until Revelation 12 that we discovered that the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan. It takes the last book of the Bible to help us to interpret the first one. Well, going back, all the way back to the very first time I can remember reading Revelation, I've always wondered how you win a war with angelic beings. I mean, what makes for victory? Is it, is it kind of like sumo wrestling where you, you just keep pushing one another until somebody falls off the edge? I, I'd always wondered that. It turns out that the answer is there in the text. It's obvious, but it's not quite as clear, I guess, as, as we would hope. After the dragon's defeat, an unidentified voice in heaven cries out in victory. Now have come the salvation and the power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For, our, for the accuser of our brothers and sister, sisters who accuses them day before God, day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. I want to come back here and focus a little more clearly on verses 10 and 11. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not live, love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See here in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verses 7 and 9, the archangel Michael and his army accomplished victory. But in the victory shout of verses 10 and 12, or 10 through 12, we discovered that this battle actually took place on earth. And the ones who win the war are those accused day and night by the dragon, our brothers and sisters. Now, presumably, the ones who lost this war through, uh, are the ones who, through violence, attempt to destroy the faithfulness of the accused. Rome, the height of human power and splendor. And it's here in Revelation 12 that we see another shift in the book. The first occurred, as we mentioned, in Revelation 5, where we learned that the lion had conquered as a slaughtered lamb. And here we see an essential part of Revelation 5 pulled forward into Revelation 12 as one of the ways that the accused conquer the dragon is through the blood of the lamb. In other words... Their victory has already been won for them by the Lamb. The accused also conquer through the word of their testimony. And in case we aren't clear on what this means, the voice from heaven tells us they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The Christian defeats Satan 
by remaining faithful even in the face of all that the evil, all that the world has to offer, good or bad. And Revelation 17 and 18 demonstrates God's view of the allure of this world. We may not understand the pieces of our lives, but we have a Savior who loved us and who died for us, and He did not stay dead. Therefore, we actively resist the attempt to force our compromise, whether we are afraid or enticed. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Not our oppressor, not our enricher. Not anything of this world. You know, that may be. But the dragon is fierce. And he's not finished. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And having failed to annihilate the child and finding himself thrown out of heaven, the dragon looks for another target. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. So the dragon pursues the woman, the people of God, but again she ends up in the wilderness, the desert, that inhospitable place of protection. In the desert she is out of the serpent's reach, but this doesn't dissuade him. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. The dragon can't reach the woman, so he attempts to overwhelm the woman, in essence to swallow her with a flood, with a tsunami, if you will. But in, the theme, but in a theme that appears throughout the Bible, Satan's weapon is turned on itself, and water that is meant to swallow is in itself swallowed. Still, the dragon is not deterred. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold, their, and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Let's be clear about whom the dragon is pursuing. We saw him go after the child, but the child is snatched to the throne of God. The woman flees to safety in the wilderness, the desert. After losing the war, he goes after the woman who again goes to safety in the wilderness. And after attempting to overwhelm her with water that ends up being swallowed instead of swallowing, the dragon goes after those who keeps God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Now, no matter how we might understand the imagery of the woman, and there are lots of interpretations of which I have given you but one, what is clear is that Satan is now loose on the earth, seeking to destroy those who are faithful to Christ. And while Revelation 12 doesn't explicitly highlight this, Matthew 2 illustrates that collateral damage does not matter to the dragon. That's a lot of stuff in a mere 17 verses. 
And what are we to make of all of this? First, as we have learned, we must remember that John intended to communicate something to his first audience. This, the constant allusion to the Old Testament, the references to Roman Asia, John's heavy use of repetition demonstrate that John did not mean for his vision to be inaccessible to that audience. John had a message for them. John had a message that he want, that from God that he wanted them to understand. It wasn't simply a message for some future generation, some final generation, to decode. Second, if John's audience could, not under, uh, could understand and apply it, if they could understand and apply it, we can too. Now, it's undoubtedly more difficult for us. Frankly, we don't know the Old Testament as well. We've got a learning curve there. Nor do we know much about Roman Asia, Roman Asia and we will always be limited there. Thus, some of John's imagery that is so obvious to his initial audience is not so obvious to us. The myriad of interpretations for all the various pieces reminds us of this and cautions us about being too dogmatic. But whatever our limitations, Revelation 12 clarifies for us that evil, the evil arrayed against us is both monstrous and relentless. Consider this. The dragon crouches, waiting to devour the Messiah. And while I doubt that it did so for John, for us, it's almost impossible not to see the connection to Matthew 2. Herod, knowingly or not, serves as the hands and feet and even the mouth of the dragon, seeking to devour the plan of God before it even gets a foothold on the earth. Now stop and think for a second. How many people willingly or unknowingly have served as the hands and feet and even mouth of the dragon throughout history? And yet, here we are, 2,000 years later, and the gates of hell have not prevailed. We are still here this third Sunday of Advent, worshiping our Savior who, has, who was not swallowed up by death, who, but who rose in victory. As Paul cries out, quoting from both the prophets Isaiah and Hosea, he says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? I find this big picture helpful. My place and standing with God is certain and sure because the worst that this life has to offer, death, has already been conquered. But there's more. And there has to be. For our, for our mother in the first painting and Job in the second to make some sense of their situations, exposed in utter terror before a ruthless, unyielding, and persistent foe. As Job never discovered why his life fell to pieces, I assume that the mother in our painting from Matthew 2 would be oblivious to the larger battle of which she and her child are collateral damage. We see the story. We know that God's plan uh, plan of salvation for the entire world brushed her arm. Herod, 
the dragon's minion, is only there because God is. Meanwhile, in Matthew 2 and Revelation 12, we see God working deliverance, though maybe not quite in the manner we hope or expect if we are in such a moment. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus still ends up on the cross with all of its attendant horrors. And in Revelation 12, the dragon is foiled in its attempt to devour the Messiah. And even after the Messiah's death, while the woman, the people of God, are forced to flee twice to safety in the desert. We may not know if God's plan for us or others has brushed our arm during our despair. We may not see the earth open up to swallow the flood headed toward us. We may see the desert where we find ourselves and we are loath to call it safety, let alone victory. But we do know from Matthew 2 and Revelation 12 that God is there working, providing, and comforting. And this is where our confidence lies. This is why we dare not compromise. This is why we must remain faithful. Our victory is always twofold. By the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony. Because we do not cling to this life, even in the face of death. Listen to the Apostle Paul reflect on this as he also goes through suffering. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This may not make our pain any less, but it gives us context and assurance. It provides us with the foundation to cry out in the face of dragon or Herod, or even our failing hearts and the consequences of our own sin, that Jesus is Lord. He has conquered, He is on the throne, and He will return. But we'll save that one for another couple of weeks. It also gives us courage to come forward and stand before the dragon on behalf of those facing its onslaught. And yes, we all know what happened to Gandalf in this scene, don't we? If you don't know, spoiler alert, he dies. If we had started in Matthew 1 this morning, we would have been amazed at the choreography uh, that took place, from the genealogy to the encouragement and the command to Joseph. And let's reflect very quickly on what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1. Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph does not know all that we know. His life has just fallen to pieces. But unbeknownst to him, the plan of God to provide salvation to the world just brushed his shoulder. 
Matthew explains further. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. Neither the dragon nor Herod had a chance. They still don't. The words of the angel are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God is with us. That is the joy of Advent. Let's pray.